Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we have a special guest, one of the companies that is part of SeedCamp's family and touches upon a very interesting side of being a founder, which is hiring, but does, does it in a very intelligent way. But I won't steal the thunder and I'll let Ali introduce himself and tell us a little bit about what Saber is and then we'll jump into your background. We always like to start with a little bit of the background that then became the, the founder and the company. But maybe you just tell us a little bit about Saber and, and a little bit about yourself. Sure, so uh, I'm Alistair. Um, started Saber about two and a half, three years ago now. Um, and the, the driver for it really was uh, why do startup companies succeed or, or fail? Um, and I was very interested from, uh, in, in this subject from a sort of mathematical point of view. My background is in aerospace engineering. Um, and I was looking at research that we, we sort of studied the US-based venture capital industry and they saw that, uh, you know, in, in the, they looked at 1,500 US-based venture capital firms and their portfolio companies and they realized that 83% of these companies failed. But the, and, and that's not a new statistic, but the interesting statistic for me was that in two-thirds of the cases, the, the reason for the failures was down to team dynamics. And that makes no sense, right? So one of the only options or one of the only sort of controls that you have when you start a company is who you bring onto your team. So for that to be the number one cause of failure didn't make any sense whatsoever, especially not to an aerospace engineer. I mean, an, an engineer's job is to understand the system well enough to the point where you can improve it. And there seemed to be a real lack of understanding about how we build teams and how that translates into performance. So we set out to figure out, can you predict performance in a way that allows you to improve it before it happens? Okay. Um, we'll talk a little bit about your product in a bit, but maybe you can walk us through your, um, and most of you that are obviously listening to the podcast, you might Google Ali, but um, if you do, you'll realize that Ali, um, you know, he's, he's very, definitely very young looking, but in some ways very wise for, for his age. And uh, I know that you and your co-founder, Sam, uh, met in college. And did you start this right after? How was, how was the journey behind uh, the original creation of, of Saber? We did. So we were, we, we knew each other in university. We were both into surfing, kite surfing, you know, sort of more extreme water sports. Um, and we were both doing degrees. He was doing uh, uh, oceanography and ocean physics, um, and I was doing aerospace. And we both knew that we didn't really want to go into those particular fields, but we both had analytical skills that we wanted to apply to something, mm -hmm. and had both started to become interested in, in the world of business. I had uh, created a, a wave energy device, which we patented, and, and it made the university a lot of money. And in that process, I became very interested in the business world. And so I sort of set out to see how we could turn this wave energy device into, into a business. In that process, I became far more interested in how people work and, mm. and how to sort of engineer performance in this, in this way. Um, and Sam was very interested in getting involved in the startup scene as well. And he said, can I come and join you on your team? And I said, yeah, of course. So we both set out to start this, start this company together. Um, he was still at university. He was a year younger than I was. And I got a scholarship to go and study in the States. Um, learned a lot out there and then tried to come back and apply those lessons um, to the business that we were, we were creating. And it was just two of us to begin with. We, uh, we moved into his parents' house in a garage in Devon, 
classic cliche story. I dropped out of my um, PhD, um, you know, moved in with his parents, and and that's that's really how we sort of started it. Yeah, and and you you know when we met you guys, it was very clear that there was a lot of uh, good thinking behind the theory. And we'll talk a little bit about this idea of as a, being evaluated in a team versus being evaluated as an individual. But one of the things that started happening uh, within your own organization was the choice of whether the company could stay together as it was when one founder needed to leave for whatever reason. So maybe without me sort of stealing the punchline, can you walk us as the audience through kind of how, how did that happen? What was it that, um, that uh, led to sort of you, Sam, working together, but then ultimately Sam choosing to leave? One of the founding principles that we had when we started the company was um, to be free to make the choices that we wanted to make in life and not be constrained by a career. That's why both of us went into the startup world, not into the corporate world. Um, Sam's girlfriend moved to Australia about the same time that we started the company. And he said, hey, look, I, I'm thinking about moving out there with her. And for us, the, the, the sort of dilemma of Sam moving to Australia at the beginning of our company was an easy one to solve because we started it on freedom. If we then restricted his choice to move to Australia, we would have fallen at the first hurdle. Mm -hmm. So he moved out there and we had a very, very honest conversation with each other, which was if we can make it work economically, if we can find business out there, if we can find clients out there, then great, we'll, we'll crack on and we'll, we'll make a good go of this. If we find after three months mm -hmm. that we're failing to see the traction we're looking for out there, then we'll be very proactive in managing your transition out of the company um, as a founder. And Sam was really open to that. We both started this company with a lot of passion. We really want it to mm. succeed. And that came before anything else was success of the company. And so Sam was very amicable in, in leaving the company. He didn't try to cling on to shares. He didn't try to uh, sort of take the company down with his departure. He was like, I want this company to succeed. It's going to succeed better if I uh, leave given that mm. I'm now based in Australia. Mm. This is a very mature sort of approach to, to the process of life around uh, a startup. But maybe if for, for those founders that are listening to this that find themselves in that same situation, what advice would you give on how to manage that so that you could have an outcome like yours? We were really crystal clear on what we wanted out of this when we, when we started the company. Uh, we were steeped in... Uh, the Founder's Dilemmas, Knowledge, which is a, a book by Noam Wasserman, and if you haven't read it and you haven't started a company, then, then read that before you start one, because it talks about all of the things that trip up a company, and the biggest hurdle is issues between, between founders. And we were very, very clear that we wanted the company to succeed. Mm -hmm. The company came before either one of us. Mm -hmm. And so that, as a basis for all decisions, makes things so much easier, because you can, you can always trace it back to is this going to help the company or is this going to help you and I guess you could you could probably determine that just from the initial conversations whether somebody is minded towards the company or minded towards the individual it, you, you can but it's very hard to do uh, and the reason for that and I think this is the reason why team dynamics cause most startups to fail is that it's very very easy to become blinded by a vision or a mission and you can get very excited by that. So let's say you come up with a cracking idea for a startup and I'm like, Carlos, that's amazing. Mm. I love your vision for this thing. I've got a set of skills. I can mm. really help you build this. Um, we can get very excited about the vision and our sort of shared vision for it. But if we don't share um, personal goals and, and approaches to this vision, 
then that's going to come back and bite us actually really, really mm. quite quickly. So we had frank conversations up front about stuff that wasn't to do with the vision, stuff mm. to do that was to do with our own vision for our own lives. Like, where do we want to be? How do we want to be interacting with each other? How do we want to be interacting with the business? Um, more around what we wanted out of life than what we wanted out of the business. And this is, it's no irony, therefore, that some of the components of the Sabre test tried to get that information from every new, new potential member so that you can ascertain these things, right? Right. I mean, we're um, uh, obsessed by being able, being able to predict performance. Um, and to give you a good example of this, our very first test was at the University of Bristol. There was a business plan competition and there were eight teams with about eight people in each team. And we wanted to see if we could predict which team would win the competition at the end of the week um, without knowing anything about their skills, their experience, their demographic, or what they were working on. In fact, we didn't even meet the people. So that sort of begs the question of, well, what else is there to evaluate the potential for a team to win a business plan competition? And actually, it all comes down to whether the team can work well with each other um, and whether you can, uh, and this doesn't mean to say you need to be best friends, but you need to be incredibly effective. That means you need to be able to have big disagreements, but be able to get over those disagreements very amicably. And if you look at what psychology says, psychology says, oh, well, let's look at their personality profile. And that's really misleading. It's very interesting, but it's misleading because I work very well with extroverts. I also work very well with introverts. Whether you are introverted or extroverted or whatever your personality, doesn't impact how we're going to work together. It's something else and it's something much deeper and this is what we're trying to tap into in Sabre is what is it that makes people have a good relationship and an effective working relationship and that's what is at the basis of our software so at the Bristol competition oh yeah yeah tell us about we, uh, we were hoping we ranked the teams from, from one to eight we were hoping that you know the teams with better relationships would have more success in the competition than teams with worse relationships at the end of the week uh, they opened the sealed envelope and we had correctly predicted the precise ranking of all eight teams mm. which is a chance of what one in 40,000 something like that mm. and this really speaks to the sort of concept that your performance your ability to use your skills is far more determined by your interactions with those around you than it is by your own sort of motivations mm. and so to some extent you intuited that because you went to school with Sam and you have already had that but then that provided some level of, of foundation around trying to discern what made that up what was the DNA of that relationship to then apply that algorithmically to any new people and it, and it would seem like a good transition to ask you about what happened after Sam left because you did a very, another very uh, interesting decision which was to bring somebody on board maybe I won't kind of steal a thunder but make Maybe you can walk through that decision, who that person was, why you chose, and then ultimately how you determined whether that was the right fit. Sure. So, I don't have any uh, particular skill set. I'm not a developer, I'm not a designer, I'm not, a, um, uh, I'm not particularly uh, good at marketing. But what I do have is an insatiable curiosity as to how things all fit together. Um, and Sam was training himself to be a front-end web developer. So we, we had the ability to put t together a website, but we, need, we knew we needed new tech skills. So the first hire that we made was a CTO uh, who we happened to meet through the Seedcamp network. 
that's perhaps a story for another time but yeah. uh, Nick came on and he was a really excellent CTO the next hire that we wanted to make was somebody who could help us with the sort of UX and the visual side of things so we brought on uh, Marta who uh, we also met through the Seedcamp network but because we knew Sam was going to be transitioning out what we wanted was somebody to work with me to grow the business side of things um, and I wanted to bring on somebody who was more senior, who had been around the block, who'd seen how businesses worked, um, and more importantly, knew how to sell to large enterprises who are our target customer. And so I brought on Tom as a CEO um, to fill the gap that Sam was able to provide uh, to me as a co-founder. Um, that seemed like a really easy choice to make. Um, but it generally isn't a very easy choice to make. I mean, you, you say it, and it rolls off your tongue very eloquently, but for the most part, most people really struggle with this idea of you being the founder and having somebody above you. But maybe you can walk through kind of not just the logic of why the choice, which you, you just explained, but what was the implication for you emotionally of saying, am I going to be in charge of this? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, I don't consider Tom as above me and I'm pretty sure he would answer the same way. We're next to each other. In fact, all of our sort of founding team and there are four of us who I consider on the founding team very much feel that we are next to each other there's no real hierarchy um, but there was sure there was a case of you know what I'm, I'm giving away significant equity to bring on this guy um, we haven't worked together before and he's going to take the title of CEO which to most people assumes that they're in charge of the entire operation but it was a ruthless business decision we want to sell to large enterprises. Large enterprises want to buy from somebody who they can trust. Trust usually comes a lot easier if they look uh, and talk uh, like the person you're trying to sell to. Um, they want to know that the smarts are coming from somebody like me who's you know, been studied at Harvard, has got a degree in aerospace engineering, has come up with some funky algorithm so that, you know they feel like it's innovative. But they want to sign a check over to somebody who they feel is a far more senior executive. So, maybe, so maybe, it's, maybe it's less than that, because I think maybe you're putting yourself down a bit here, but maybe it's more about um, somebody that, that understands the way that they think about this decision-making process and can package up the sales process in a way that they can then sell internally. That's it. And Tom really brought that. He brought a level of maturity to the company that was absent before his arrival. Um, he did take the CEO title and we had a very uh, sort of honest internal conversation which was this is a positioning exercise for us. You take the CEO title not because you are the boss but because that is going to help us sell more than it would do if I were the CEO. Um, and it all comes back to that initial value which is we want, we, but, the company comes first. You say that but there's a trust there, right? Like it's, it's one thing to tell somebody, hey look you're new, I haven't really worked with you. But now you need to like take this, I'm going to give you the emperor throne and whatever. You know, I've seen this in other companies in the past where sometimes the title can corrupt people. Not in the sense that power corrupts, but sometimes because it makes them um, take ownership of certain things that they maybe shouldn't be taking ownership of. And how did you, how did you determine whether uh, Tom could be not trusted in the sense of like, obviously there's a lot of things you could trust him on just implicitly by the effort that he came, you know, recommended. But how did you trust that that limitation on the title was not going to start um, becoming more lax and then eventually leading to a tear internally? 
Um, I suppose two two ways that I assessed it, and it's quite interesting looking back because hindsight is twenty twenty, so you can make up any story you like. But I I think the process, if I'm being honest, I think the process was down to two things. Um, one is that we didn't start working together immediately. We had a sort of incubation period of about six months where we worked very closely together. Um, spoke to each other every day, usually in person for several hours, um, even on weekends, uh, where we would talk through, uh, again, same process that I went through with Sam, like, what do you want to get out of Sabre? Like, what, what do you want to get out of your life? Where are you going? You know, how, how's things at home? What's your trajectory? What's your intended trajectory? Um, so we had a, a lot of those conversations, but of course we had a lot of business conversations about how we might bring complementary skills and what connections did he have, what you know, clients that he had lined up that might be able to, to work with us straight away. Um, so there was that element. But of course, we ran him through our own tool, which we've seen prove to be a very accurate predictor of performance in many situations, even when initially it didn't, you know, the, the, the sort of output looked contradictory to what was actually happening. Um, so he scored very, very highly on, on our own internal uh, assessment, this, this sort of saber tool that we built, um, but we did spend six months working together to figure out all of these little issues around motivators and, and how we were going to work together. I've got quite a, a, I guess, confident personality anyway. I'm not shy with my opinions. Uh, I won't back down from an argument if somebody opposes me, unless they can convince me that, uh, you know, that they've got a better argument. I have very strong opinions, but they're very weakly held. So I'm not stubborn, I'll just put up a good fight. And that really helps us to have exceptionally good or, or high quality conversations internally. Right. So Tom and I don't agree but, but, on 99% of the stuff. Right. But those, the interesting thing about your self-descriptor is that according to the technology you built, it, the self-descriptor for the success of Sabre is less important. It's rather the mixture of that self-descriptor along with others and therefore, it's the, the joint um, balance that determines the success of Sabre, not your individual attributes, which, of course, like for the sake of, of the audience, you know, obviously sound very good. But this does touch upon a very interesting point, which you talked about earlier, which is understanding that someone is not a success as an individual, but rather a success uh, of the people they're surrounded with. Maybe you can share a little bit more about that. Yeah. And this is, I think, what makes our software predictive. So just to give you a couple of examples, uh, we can predict the performance of sales teams. Uh, we can say this sales team is likely to make more money than this sales team. Not reach their targets, but make more money. We can predict um, whether development teams are gonna ship buggy code or not. Um, we can predict which call center desk is going to have a higher success rate of, of calls. Um, and we've done some interesting stuff in the startup space where we predicted founders leaving, companies breaking up, stuff like this. And it all comes down to a single principle, which is you cannot be fully understood in isolation. And if you're trying to predict a business outcome or you're trying to predict the performance of a team or of an individual, you have to understand that the performance of that individual is so dependent upon their environment. We are inextricably part of a network. Humans, by their very nature, are social creatures. We depend upon each other for our own survival. Um, and so if you look at the history of psychology, it's been obsessed with trying to nail you as an individual. This is why um, 
the whole, you know, there's, there's thousands of personality tests out there, all of them very interesting and sometimes informative about who you are, but none of them are predictive about business outcomes or KPIs or metrics. There's a whole load of sort of culture fit tools out there which try to understand, you know, are you similar to other people in this organization? And it's not about being similar, it's about understanding whether you are complementary to them. So this concept of culture fit really needs to be boiled down to the pair level. And the way I describe it is, it's a combination of two things. What are your values and what are my values? And these are the things that really motivate us. But more importantly, can we tolerate the difference in each other's values? So if I'm really motivated by self-direction and freedom of action and exploring new ideas, and you, Carlos, are very motivated by security and, and tradition and taking the, you know, proven successful route that might not be so innovative. It doesn't really matter if we don't share the same values, provided we're very, very tolerant of the differences between us. So I might really respect the, the, the idea that every time you block a suggestion of mine, it's usually to ensure the success of the thing. And you might really value the fact that I'm always trying to bring something new and innovative to the table. But we often get sort of caught up in this idea of diversity. People often say to me, well, you know, isn't it true that diverse teams are more successful? And the answer to that is sometimes. Um, and it's not diversity itself that breeds success. Uh, if you have a, uh, it, it's, it's more important that um, the team are tolerant of each other's diversity. You can have a team of very diverse people and it will be an absolute disaster. And then you can have another team of very diverse people where they really understand each other's perspectives, and that's when you get success. Um, and do you find that diversity of certain types leads to uh, a more predictable set of outcomes? So if you look at the funnel that somebody would have mm -hmm. when looking at using the Sabre test, the funnel would be everybody who's a potential candidate for hire, then there is the people who take the test, and then there are people who you might give like one or two employment opportunities to. Is the future of Sabre and or is it even possible to have some element of diversity curation as a, uh, a preloading mechanism prior to, to the Sabre test? And, and, and if so, what, what would be the, the psychometric attributes that would make that up? It's definitely possible. Um, but the thing you have to ask yourself is, what's going to lead to performance? I actually don't really care about diversity, I don't really care about personality, I don't really care about values. What I care about is being able to forecast performance um, and being able to predict or be able to say this particular trait will or will not lead to performance in your case. Um, and in the majority of cases what you find is that diversity of experience and diversity of background um, which sort of then leads to diversity of thinking uh, is incredibly beneficial for teams in terms of performance. Uh, and there's a couple of caveats to that, like depending on what task you're doing, but I'll cover that in a second. So diversity of thinking is often very highly correlated with, with high performance, but what you need to pair that with is non-diversity in values and tolerance of values. Like, we need to be really, really solid on our value set. But then, if you pair that with diversity of experience, 
So you've had a totally different career path to me. You've done some. You've had an eclectic career, or you've done something that I have never had any experience in, and yet we share very common values, and we both bring a passion and a skill set to the team that's going to be useful. That's how we're going to achieve high performance.、Um, if you just bring diversity of experience but no common values, you're just going to have arguments.、Um, and what are those? Just maybe just digging deeper into what you mean by values. I mean, are we talking something as simple as two people who may have different religions but have a view that、um, a moralistic or a character-driven life is、uh, important? And and within that context of searching some element of character development, that's what they have in common. Is is that what you mean by values, or what what do you mean by shared values? So we we determine values by.、Um Uh, and this is the tricky question, right? Is if you ask me what my values are, I'll tell you every value ever, like happiness and trust and freedom. Yeah.、Um, do I value trust more than freedom? I, I I don't I don't know. It's difficult for us to say explicitly what our values are. Yeah. And in us trying to sort of quantify this and build it into an algorithm, what we're trying to do is reduce values down to the、um, the the sort of most fundamental set. Of values that you can possibly have, and one that we're particularly fond of is a framework called Schwartz's framework, which actually underpins the European Social Survey. And Schwartz has nine or ten values, depending on who you talk to.、Um, and those are things like power and achievement, which are very closely related. But opposing them are things like universalism, which is、um, so if if power is caring about being able to exercise your power for the benefit of yourself, universalism. Is about exercising your power for the benefit of everybody else.、Um, achievement is also very highly related to, you know, achieving success, personal success. And the opposite of that is benevolence, which is using your skills to benefit people around you, near near to you. And so Schwartz has sort of nine or ten of these values, which look at really fundamental traits. And to go back to the sort of、um, uh, self-direction and freedom of action. Uh, value versus the security and the sort of、uh, stability value. Let's say we're we're co-founders of a company and we're raising our first round.、Um, if I am motivated by self-direction and freedom of action, I might say, Carlos, look, I、uh, I met this dude in Silicon Valley. He's a partner at one of the big funds out there. I reckon we should like buy a plane ticket. Fly out there, have a meeting with them, because I reckon we can get way better terms and raise a much bigger amount of cash.、Uh, it's more risky, but I think that's that's what we should do. And you're like, no, I know a couple of partners here in 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 London. They're going to give us worse terms, but I know them much much better. I've got a good relationship with them. They're almost guaranteed to give us the cash. That we end up arguing about how our strategy should be for raising capital, but we're not arguing about our strategy for raising capital. We're arguing about the differences in our core values, which is I'm motivated. I, I achieve happiness when I'm allowed to to explore new ideas and take risks. And you achieve happiness whether you make progress by taking surefire bets.、Mm. And that's what leads to sort of disruption. And we try to quantify that down to something that's actually useful, so that you can use it,、um, you know, when you're hiring somebody or when you're building your team. Now. The the difficulty is when you're a founder using a piece of software like ours is you've got time on your hands to really evaluate somebody across the table. So you're hiring me for a role. You can interview me for six hours. It's it's in your interest to do that, and you are a very good judge of whether you like me or not. You're a very good judge of whether you'd be able to work with me or not. 
What you're not a good judge at, or what's much harder for you to judge, is whether I'm going to work well with the rest of your team. And that's where things break down. That's where software becomes really, really useful, because you can, it, you can scale what one person cannot scale. Um, and you can remove bias. So you've got your own internal biases, for good or for worse, that allow you to make decisions. The problem is, they're not transparent at all. I have no idea what your biases are, or how they're expressed, or how that leads to you making decisions. But with software, you can lay it bare, and you can say, this is the way our software is or is not biased, and you can work those biases out of the software very, very easily. So you end up with a method of selecting people, um, or sort of building teams with shared values that is far scalable, far more scalable than a, a human, and then far less bias. Mm. And that's the real benefit to what we're doing. Um, and if you think about it, if you paint this into the big picture, like why should you even care about building the right teams? Like why does it really matter? We've been building teams for thousands of years. What we're really motivated by at Saber is bringing the future closer, faster. So there are teams out there doing awesome stuff. You know, there are teams out there working on putting humans on Mars. There are teams out there working on curing cancer. There are teams out there building sort of nanotechnology that's going to be able to let my brain sync with the cloud so I have far more memory capacity. Mm. There are people doing incredibly exciting things that I want to be a part of, but they're being slowed down by this unnecessary friction between people in teams that are building it mm. because we've been building teams through sort of random selection or chance. What if you could engineer that team design so that the outcomes mm. were much better and so that everybody could be more productive. Mm. That's what's interesting about what we're doing. Yeah, and, and you know, the engineering that you just mentioned, one of the variables we, we talked about, and, and you, you, know, you helped me kind of better understand what you meant by values. Um, and when you talked about your story with Sam and how those values were shared and you know, some of it was perhaps not as well articulated at the time, but eventually became the foundation of, of some of the the, the decisions for the algorithm. But subsequently, when you hired in Tom, you mentioned something else, and it was around evenness. And we talked a little bit about this concept of his CEO title was not one of hierarchy. It played into the, the, the evenness in the team. And from what I understand, you build that into the, the test to figure out the evenness. Right, and this is one of the really surprising things we found when we started working with really large enterprises. So we started working with, with companies where they've got hundreds and hundreds of people split into lots of teams, and then they gave us really rich performance data to help us see how those teams were performing historically. And you and I both anecdotally know that if you've got good relationships with somebody, you're both likely to have better performance at work. That just makes sense. Like you've worked with, When you work with people who you really get on with, you do a better job. When you work with people who really frustrate you, it's much harder for you to, to do your best performance. So relationship quality, we all know to be true um, when it comes to predicting performance. And our software was based around that principle was, let's look at relationship quality. Um, but what we found when we started working with these large enterprises was that relationship quality was only one part, and in fact not even the most important part about predicting performance. What was more important was that teams had equal relationships, even if those relationships were of lower quality. So if you've got two teams of 10, where both teams have a sort of relationship quality of 50% on average, if one team 
half the team have a score of 100% and half the team have a score of 0%, and then you've got the other team where everybody has a score of 50%, that second team where they've got even relationship quality will significantly outperform the other team. Because the other team is cliquey in a way. The other team is cliquey. You get office politics, you get best friends, you get sort of weak links in the chain, you get infighting. And you see this, you know, all the time in, in, in founding teams. You see this in startups all the time. Yeah. You get very clear channels of communication mm. and you get deep resentment. And that is not productive for anybody. Mm. So one of the things that we were very meticulous about when we were building our team at Saver was that when we're adding somebody new to the team, they need to add to the equality of the team. They mm. need to make sure that we aren't building a, a channel of favorites. So if, if, I, if I add somebody to my team and, and I have the worst score with that person out of everybody in my team, if every new person I add to the team, I have the worst score with them, I'm essentially engineering myself out of the company because I'm consistently lowering my, my score. And what's really important is that you, you get this equality. And it's, it was surprising how predictive that was of performance. Mm. Um, so that's, that's interesting. So we've covered two major contributors to the success of a company. I mean, you know, the first thing being a shared value set. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the Sabre test does a pretty good job of, of identifying those, those values and, and whether or not they're complementary. And the second one being this sort of evenness around the team. Um, and that alone, I mean, we've used, we've used the Sabre test for, for SeedCamp uh, in looking at companies um, and you know it's a tool that we've analyzed our seed camp team within and it's really funny to see you know the people and how we stack up and but it's been very useful to, for that end what do you see as the future of Sabre is, is the future of Sabre a form of, um, of continued operation as this sort of middle layer of, of sort of evaluation um, or is it going to extend all the way out to fringes in terms of like job marketplaces or other things what, what, what do you reckon the future of of Sabre is? Put it this way, 20 years ago the marketing industry was uh, a very creative industry. They, they built campaigns based upon talent and gut instinct and they were you know, creative flair. And then digital marketers came along and said, hey, we've got some software that can perhaps increase the ROI of your campaign. And the initial response was real sort of objection. But now, you wouldn't dream of doing a marketing campaign without exceptional analytics pre, during, and post your campaign. In the future, we will absolutely use data and analytics when we're designing teams and hiring people into our company. Why on earth would you leave it to chance as to whether you're building a good team or a bad team? You will use every single piece of data available to you to ensure that you are designing the best team possible. Because so much depends upon it. But it doesn't just stop at companies. Because humans depend upon social networks in every element of their lives, professional, social, and romantic, we're going to see the infiltration of data into all sorts of other places. So you could use this for sports teams. You could use this for designing educational systems or choosing which school to send your children to. Um, You could use this to choose which hospital to go to to get the best care for you because the relationship with your doctor is critical. Mm. You could use this for choosing flatmates. You can't do any of that now, but that is absolutely the future of people analytics. 
is using data to inform our decision-making process in a way that leads to more favorable outcomes more often. Mm. It's just common sense. Cool. Common sense it is. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. And until next time, see you later.